It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. A quick content warning before we get started. This episode of The Murder Sheet contains graphic descriptions of murder and violence and some language that some listeners might find offensive. They call this place the Devil's Backbone. Last autumn, we visited it with retired Indiana State Police Trooper Jim Kramer. He took us there because we likely never could have found it ourselves. Or if we did, we may not have found our way home again. It's a stretch of narrow country road, somewhere between Indianapolis and Terre Haute. But... As we stand near an iron bridge, staring into the tangled woods that surround us, those cities seem far, far away. And if you stray from the path into the trees, it is not long before you start running into things like the decaying bones of what we think was once a coyote. We are here because of Alan Pruitt. 
We introduced you to him last week. He's the young redhead who stood in the parking lot of the Dunkin' Donuts as the Burger Chef employees were being abducted next door. But we didn't share with you all of the story he told, or how it ended with him here, running desperately for his life through the maze of grasping branches at the Devil's Backbone. is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're the Murder Sheet. We'll be taking a multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders. We'll be presenting you with a new theory about what happened each week as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. On a weekly basis, you're going to hear from figures you've never heard from before. You're going to hear about facts you've never heard before. And hopefully, you'll walk away with a better understanding of the sheer complexity of this awful crime. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We've worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. In this mini-series, we will give you the top theories about the crime. After we finish covering the Burger Chef case, the murder sheet will continue to investigate different restaurant-related homicides for the rest of season one. We are the murder sheet, and this is You Never Can Forget, The Backbone. week, we shared with you how Alan told police about what he saw happen on the night of the murders, how he claimed he saw Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby abduct the Burger Chef victims. And we told you the story of Tim's girlfriend, Marianne Higginbotham, who was found dead and welded into a barrel in the summer of 1979. Now it's time to hear what Alan said happened the day after the murders. I will read excerpts from his 1981 deposition, and Anya will provide context. On the day after the kidnappings, Alan said he slept in and then spent most of the afternoon working on his car. After a while, he decided to head over to the Dairy Queen in Avon, Indiana, an ice cream joint that served as a hangout for the young people in the area. I was there approximately 10 minutes, I'd say, long in there. The same van I'd seen the night prior to that, the night of the robbery, the same van, Tim Willoughby, Jeffrey, and Marianne Higginbotham were in it, they pulled up beside me. Alan hadn't caught any radio or television broadcasts that day. 
He had no idea what he had witnessed the night before. No idea that four Burger Chef employees had been kidnapped and now lay dead in the woods of Johnson County. Kim started talking to me. I mean, like he'd never came on to me like he did that day. I mean, that day he acted buddy-buddy for some reason. He got out, talked for a minute, and said, Do you want to ride around and smoke a joint? I said, What was that fight all about up there at the Burger Chef last night? And he said, Why? Was you there? Yeah, I said. Me and my friend were both up there at Dunkin' Donuts. That's when he started acting real funny. He was all excited about getting me to go with him. I got in the van. Tim started rolling a joint. He took off driving down US 36. Marianne was there. She was crying, acting hysterical. I could tell looking at her she was high on something. She started blabbing all this stuff. At first, it didn't make sense to me. The first thing she said was they was going to kill her. I laughed at her. Well, I didn't laugh at her, but she said they was going to kill her. I said, what for? She said that they was going to kill her because they wanted her to shoot one of the kids because they knew if she did, she wouldn't go to the police. The idea was that if Marianne shot one of the victims, she would be just as guilty of murder as Tim and Jeff, and therefore could not turn them in without also implicating herself. She told Tim, she says, you better quit doing this shit, like he had done it before. Tim kept turning around and said, why don't you shut up, you crazy bitch? All kinds of stupid stuff. Then he started getting kind of crappy with me, started asking me questions about Jane. He made a turn to a road there called Backbone Road, went down that road, stopped there at that iron bridge, parked there on the left side of the road. Marianne said every time Tim was up there at the burger chef, Jane would put him on, would say, well, I'll get it straightened out. That's all she kept telling him. She said that the night they went up there that Tim was pissed off. He was getting pressured by somebody else. She didn't mention who. I've got my ideas, though. But he was getting pressured, pissed off. Jeff was riding his ass. She said that Jeff was riding him, and they went there. I guess Tim was getting into it with Jane, giving her a bunch of hell. And that black boy tried to make a funny move, tried to act tough or something. She said that him and Jeff got into it, and Jeff threw him into the van, knocked him out, and he died. I don't know if that's why they went out there to Johnson County or what. She said they were supposed to go see somebody. But he got out there and Jeff started blowing off a bunch of shit, saying, well, if he's dead, then we're in a spot. And that's when the white boy and the white girl said, I guess they were probably screaming it out, saying, yeah, we're going to tell the cops. And Jeff said, well, hell, better whop him. Alan started to get worried, especially after he noticed a gun laying on the console. The nickel-plated pistol, a 38 or 32 caliber, he estimated, rattled around there with some spare change and a big bag of pot. Marianne said they were going to kill me, too. Tim got out. Jeff got out. When I got out, I kind of sat out and looked around. Tim was doing all the talking. He said, Marianne, you sure you won't change your mind about calling the cops? She said, there's no way in hell. You better quit doing this stuff. She was hysterical. I mean, it was like she was almost dead then. I mean, just a fright or something. Like she'd been put through the ringer. Everything going back through my mind, I was starting to think about what she told me and how Tim was acting, and I started getting real paranoid. Damn, what the hell is going on? That's when Jeff said, what do you think I should do? I guess he was talking about Marianne when he said that. Tim said, I would blow the fucking bitch away if I was you. 
That's when she screamed at me. She told me, Alan, get the hell away from here. And that's all she wrote. It just scared the bloody hell out of me. And I took off running. I ran down a little bit of the creek there and up the hill and into the woods there. And I heard a gunshot. That's all I heard. I didn't turn around to look to see if they shot at me or her or what. When I got into the woods, I ran for a long time. I stopped for a minute and looked around, and I didn't see nobody, so I took off again. And it was just a matter of minutes before I hit US-40, and I started walking down the road, watching for that damn van. This guy in the truck stopped and picked me up. He told us all about it, and then he brought us right here. The state police took Pruitt's story about his narrow escape at the Devil's Backbone seriously. They scoured the area for bullet holes or any other evidence that would support his claim. They found nothing. This only reinforced the skepticism some of the troopers felt about Pruitt. Don Lindsay, who worked with Kramer on the Burgershev case for the state police, did not put much stock in what Pruitt had to say. He, met, he thought he was lying from the day he met him. In the minds of some people, Alan Pruitt's credibility took an even heavier hit when a woman named Karen Tucker came forward. She gave a deposition in which she claimed that Tim Willoughby, who Alan said committed the Burger Chef murders in November 1978, had actually been murdered in June of that year. Let's take a look at the story she told and see if it sounds more credible than what Pruitt had to say. This time, I will read the excerpts and Kevin will provide the context and scene setting. One night, Karen Tucker's then-husband, Jim Kellums, did not come home. She assumed the worst that he was out fooling around. But when he finally returned, with his friend Ronnie Tomasic at his side, she learned that the truth of where he had been was much darker than what she had imagined. When he did get in, there he was soaking wet. He was a white color, funny looking, like he had really been scared to death. I was going on. I had no idea. Ronnie was real quiet and real passive, and he was wet. The clothes were stained. It looked... Like it could have possibly been oil or something real dark. Their boots were wet, soaking wet. They were cold, nervous, high-strung, really funny acting. Because they turned around and they started to tell me they act just like they had done something really bad. Jim insisted I start washing those clothes immediately, with every kind of ingredient that I could find. Ammonia, alcohol-type things, strong soap, vinegar, anything to kill the blood. He didn't want to tell me why, he was just pushing me around, shoving me over to the utility room area, told me I had to wash these things, and of course I was arguing with him. I wanted to know what the hell was going on, and he took me over to the side and he told me to shut up, he just killed somebody, and I ought to have a little bit of common sense to take care of him now. You know, he wanted babying and pampering, he wanted me to mother him to death and tell him it was okay. Naturally, I was very nervous and very upset and had no idea whether they had covered themselves well. I was full of questions. I wanted to know where they were at, where they put them, how they did it, was anybody around, and this and that. I didn't get a lot of answers at first. He was real reluctant to tell me different things because he didn't want me to know so I wouldn't have to do a lot of lying to cops or trying to cover up lies or whatever. Karen was not too surprised to learn the identity of the people Jim and Ronnie had killed. The victims would be Tim Willoughby and his girlfriend Marianne Higginbotham. They had told me something was going to have to be done to Tim Willoughby. They were using Willoughby's home garage as a chop shop to cut up stolen cars. 
and they had taken this one stolen car and were leaving the driveway with it, and the car had fallen off the wheels. Maybe there wasn't enough bolts in the tire or something. But of course, when you're running a hot car, you don't have time to stand there and put a wheel back on and take really good care of it like you would if you were in a wreck and you had a wrecker come out. You gotta hurry up and get this stuff out of your hands so you don't get caught. So they decided that they were out on a country road wherever Willoughby lives, and they were out far enough they could run it down the road and torch it, and that's what they did. So when the fire department came out and were there taking care of this burning car, they found that there was a long line in the road that led right back to Willoughby's driveway. We confirmed the details of that bungled arson with law enforcement and found that the incident even made the newspapers. Dragging a stolen car behind him, Tim had quite literally led police to his doorstep. Anyway, they put out the car and they took off. So meantime, Willoughby is supposed to be getting rid of all the seats and the things that belong in the car or that were in the car and get rid of that stuff and get the garage cleaned back up. But Willoughby decided he was going to make some money off those car seats, so he sticks them in his attic, and he didn't tell Jim or Ronnie about it. Well, meantime, I guess the police come back to investigate, and they found that long line I was talking about. And they decided that Willoughby had been in trouble before, and that they were going to get a search warrant, and they went into his house and searched his house, and there is where they found the bucket seats. So here's Willoughby being arrested. He had already been in enough troubles, spent some time in prison, according to Jim. This guy finally got bailed out, and he was home. They went over and talked to him again, and Willoughby wanted to be paid off so that he could leave the state. He didn't want to have to do any more time. So he was either going to turn state's evidence for the cops, or they were going to have to pay him off so that he could leave town. And Jim and Ronnie, neither one of them had the money to pay him off. The men realized that if they didn't want to end up going to prison, there was only one thing they could do. So Jim and Ronnie talked off and on and said two or three times, well, Willoughby's going to have to end up dead. But I never figured that Jim and Ronnie had the balls to do that. And if they were discussing it, you know, I might throw in a tidbit that, you know, you guys can't do this or you're going to have to do something really desperate. You're going to have to put you would have to put her him in a place you can keep control of. You know, you, you just can't handle it. You guys just can't do it. Well, the next thing you know, it comes time for Willoughby to go to court. And he made a comment that he was just going to go ahead. They didn't pay him. So he was just going to go ahead and turn evidence because he wasn't spending any more time in jail. So the men knew it was time to take action. They decided that Ronnie should be the one to kill the girl. And uh, I guess they maybe thought I would have hard feelings if it was Jim killing the girl. And that Jim was going to kill Willoughby. And they told me that they had gone over to the house with full intentions of doing them. But they didn't know exactly how they were going to do it. They were just going to play it by ear. I know they went into the house with Marianne. They told me they went in there and they stayed for a while and visited acting like they was waiting on Willoughby to show up. He wasn't there. Jim said he finally had to coax Ronnie into going on and getting it done. You know, had to nod his head at him to go ahead and get her. And I guess when when she had stood up from some direction and started walking away, that's when Ronnie grabbed and knocked her down. He must have had the gun to her head. And that was when she started begging and pleading, and he told me how bad it sounded. It was really scary, and it was a really nasty thing to have to listen to and go through. She was pleading for help. Finally, he had knocked her down. I think he said he hit her in the head, too. 
And then he turned around and he shot her. He told me about how messy the blood was and how it was going everywhere. And it was it was just one hell of a mess. And while she was dying, she was begging Ronnie to help her. Please don't do this. Ronnie, you've got to help me. And naturally, there was nothing they could do. It was too late. Then the men heard the sound of Willoughby returning home. They went on outside and got him in the truck and decided to take him for a ride. And they were all going to go discuss what was going on and Willoughby fell for it. And I don't have any idea where it was, but they took him out. And Jim did tell me that he knew or that Willoughby was acting funny. And he knew something was going on when they stopped at the side of the road. And it was his turn to, you know, go after him. I guess he had a struggle with him. And then he shot him in the head, too. Jim told me about how this guy was begging Ronnie to help him, too. Don't let this happen. Please get me some help. Of some type, you know. Please, Ronnie, help me. Crying as he was dying. The men opened the hood of their truck, set Willoughby's body on the engine, and then forced the hood shut again. They stopped to get gas. Ronnie's truck used oil, and the guy giving them the gas says, You want me to check that oil? And Ronnie says, Yeah. Jim naturally hitting him on the side. They didn't want the truck opened. And Jim comes up with a story that said, Hey, I just checked this yesterday. You know, it's okay. No problem. And then they both giggled. They thought it was hilarious that they were both so upset that they had forgot. The men then returned to the Willoughby house to retrieve Marianne's body. They wrapped her up in a blanket and some type of tarp type thing. Because they had bound her, bound the blankets with rope. They didn't bind her. Then they had to go over to that car place out there, you know, where you buy all the secondhand parts. And then they went over to that place in the middle of the night and put the bodies in the barrels and sealed them shut because Ronnie was supposedly real good at welding. And then they decided to poke them with holes because they were going to take them over to the pit called U.S. Aggregates. There is a big, big hole there where a lot of people do a lot of fishing. That quarry is located off State Road 67 near U.S. 70. That's about a seven-mile drive from where the barrel containing Marianne's body was later found in Mooresville. When they took them down there, they had to wait for a while because there was people fishing. So they just had to fool around and wait. And then when the guys finally ended up leaving, then Jim and Ronnie took the barrels out of the truck and pushing them in the water. And Ronnie is the one that pushed them down to the middle, or as far as down as he could. Because I know he was telling me how bad it was, how hard for him to breathe. And he didn't think he was going to get back up, not being able to breathe, and trying to push those barrels. Karen's deposition had some elements that seemed difficult to believe. Could they really have placed Tim's bloody body under the hood of their truck? And how did the barrel containing Marianne's body seep out of a quarry and travel so far down Whitelit Creek? But her story was compelling enough for the prosecutor. He issued warrants, and Jim and Ronnie were arrested on murder charges. But the prosecutor dropped the charges shortly thereafter. The problem was Alan Pruitt. He told a story about seeing Tim and Marianne alive in November 1978. If that was true, then the two of them certainly could not have been killed by Jim and Ronnie in June of that year. Without more supporting evidence, Alan's story by itself was enough to create reasonable doubt that Jim and Ronnie were guilty of murder. The prosecutor asked the Indiana State Police to keep working on the case, to either come up with more evidence against Jim and Ronnie or to build a case against someone else. But the police couldn't find anything else on Jim and Ronnie, and no one else was ever arrested in connection with the death of Marianne or the disappearance and possible murder of Tim Willoughby. 
Kramer, though, continued to work the lead. One of his most significant finds was a former friend of Tim's. In 1978, on the day she moved into her new apartment, she says she ran into Tim at a local business. She told him she heard police were looking for him, that he should be careful. He told her not to worry, that he had a good hiding place down south. When Tim's friend came forward to police, she couldn't quite remember the date of that encounter. When Kramer checked her apartment lease, he learned that her move-in date was in early November 1978. If you believe her story, she therefore places Tim in the area, quite alive, just weeks before the Burgershoff murders. It seemed a point in favor of Alan's story, but it wasn't enough to prove it. When Kramer got a chance to talk with Jeff Reed, the other man Alan named, he seized it. One of the jailers out here in Hendricks County knew that uh, knew that I had some interest in him. He told me, hey, this guy's in jail. Uh, I went. I went to a uh, local agency that gets uh, motel rooms and so forth for transients. Uh, I got him out of jail when he was released. I picked him up. He needed a ride. I got him a room at a motel. I picked him up the next morning. I bought his breakfast. I sat and talked to him. He knew who I was. Uh, and that I'd been involved in this case, and I was just blunt with him. Uh, without reading him his rights, without anything, I said, here's what I think happened. And uh, I didn't come out and say, I think you did this. I gave him all the information that he could know that we were looking at him hot and heavy. And he sat there and looked at me for, like I say, whatever period of time it was, and uh, he never said one word. He never said, I didn't do it, you're wrong, or he just didn't say anything, Uh, which, you know, that doesn't prove prove a thing. It was just curious to me. And I gave him a ride up to Indianapolis. I don't even remember where I took him. But I thought it might be a a way to uh, work in and and get information on that lead, but it, it failed. Jeff Reed died in 2011. Anya and I never got the opportunity to speak with him. Tim Willoughby remains missing. You can find his case listed on NamUs. I've been trying to find Tim since I started investigating this case, following leads through places like Kentucky and Florida. I haven't had any luck. Karen Tucker wouldn't speak with us, nor would the men she accused of murder. There was one person in this story who has sat down with us. In fact, we've spent many, many hours with him. That would be Alan Pruitt. Let's take a quick break from the Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget, to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. 
The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. Alan Pruitt is not what you might expect. He's got a long beard streaked with white and orange, red hair, and a hoarse voice that can bellow when he's excited or telling a raucous tale. When you visit him, he is full of colorful stories about his past, like the time he wrestled with his Green Beret father or the time he got 13 traffic tickets in a single night. But it's not all laughs. His life since the Burger Chef murders has been filled with tragedy. In recent years, he lost a brother he loved to cancer, his daughter to an aneurysm, and his son to a drug overdose. When we saw him again in October 2020, in a socially distanced front yard meetup, he seemed far less lively than ever, and he'd hacked his impressive red mane off, a sign of mourning. He lives in a modest house, and he devotes much of his time and energy to caring for his pet rabbits. His favorite is Mouse, a pristine white buck, who lives in a cage a level up from his harem of does. Alan loves animals. That goes back to the job he had at the time of the murders. 
I worked for a laboratory uh-huh. raising guinea pigs, rats, and mice. Right. For a cancer research program called oh. Murphy's. Okay. Um, of course, you know, being being, being an animal lover, mm-hmm. once they got on the floor, we were supposed to kill them. Oh, I couldn't do that. Yeah. If a rat got on the floor, a big rat, you know, albino rats or yeah. white, I'd take them home oh. and make pets out of them. Of course, my mom wasn't too happy about that. I'm sure she wasn't. <laughs> but I had one, I named him Charlie, and he loved Hershey chocolate. That's so cute. <laughs> That's so I'd sad. have to buy him a Hershey bar almost every damn day. <laughs> and feed this sucker. Did your boss get, I mean, did your boss, cock, I mean, would, the, would that have gotten you in trouble if they knew you were doing that? or would, did they No, care? Yeah. because we, like I said, we were supposed to kill him. Yeah. I didn't have the heart to do it. No. Now, the women, they take the mice home or the guinea pigs, but the rats, women didn't want nothing to do with the rats. They're so friendly, though. They're friendly animals. You know, well, you get a, when you try to kill a rat, they get very defensive. You ever heard one bark? No. You get them in a corner with like a broom. Boy, when they get up on them hind feet, you better look out. Oh, man. Because they can jump straight at your face. Sooner or later, though, conversation always returns to the Burger Chef murders. Alan knew victim Jane Freed from high school and beyond. Jane was a very pleasant, sweet-spoken girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, when she worked at the Burger Chef in Plainfield, yeah. I used to get in a lot of trouble with her. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a 69 Charger, and I used to do burnouts around the parking lot. Uh-huh. And she'd have the little drive window open and burnt smoke would go rolling inside the restaurant. <laughs> She'd be at the window doing this stuff like this. <laughs> and one day, me and a buddy of mine went in there and got something to eat. She goes, now she goes, you know, I'm not jumping your butt, but she goes, you keep doing that, they're going to end up um, where you won't be allowed on the premises. Oh, no. <laughs> when you ask Alan about Jeff Reed, the man he said he saw driving the victims to their deaths. The answer he gives might surprise you. Jeff Reed was a big muscular dude, okay? Like a football-type guy, you know, but actually bigger than that. Wow. I can tell you right now, if they come to whoop ass him, excuse my language, he could hurt you. Yeah. But as far as being a killer, no, I could never see Jeff Reed being a killer. Alan now says the story he told in 1981 was largely untrue that he made most, if not all of it, up to try to get the police to stop bothering him. Back then, he said he heard and saw a fight at the Burger Chef. Now he says he actually saw much less and can't even be sure of what he saw. Here is the story as he tells it today. Me and my buddy was up Speedway that night, Mm -hmm. and we were drunk, intoxicated. We was at the Galaxy. The Galaxy was the under-21 club located in the shopping center across the street from the Burger Chef. And I had not eaten nothing, you know, that day. I got off work. He picked me up in his car. We went to the Galaxy, hung out there, and we, like I said, we was intoxicated, and there was an IPD cop at the door. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think back then they stamped your hand. Alan was afraid because his friend was underage. If the policeman noticed his friend was intoxicated... Alan could have gotten arrested for supplying alcohol to a minor. Right, right. right. so we got out of there, and the Burke Horse Bird Shelf was closed. Yeah. 
but Dunkin' Donuts was open. And we went there. I got a cup of coffee and a couple of donuts. I think it was them, what do they call them, Long John's? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got the cream filling inside of Yeah, them. yeah. So I scarped a couple of them down, took a few good swigs of coffee. <laughs> we got out of there. And, uh, but I, like I was telling Kevin, when we first pulled into the parking lot, I saw a van sitting over Bird Chef parking lot. And I saw two guys that I re thought I recognized. Okay. You know, I thought it was Tim Willoughby and Jeff Freed. As the times went on here lately, the more I think about it, I could have been really wrong as far as identifying them guys. For the past few years, Alan has told different stories about the night of the kidnapping here and there. Sometimes he and his friend went into the galaxy. Other times they just hung around outside. Sometimes he speculates that Jimmy Freed, Jane's brother, or other players in the local drug scene might have been involved. He expresses sympathy for the victims and their families. He himself knows the pain of losing two children. His recounting of that night is a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure story, maybe because of the years that have passed, or the booze that Alan drank that night and subsequent nights, or something else entirely. The last few times we've talked to him, Alan's story has been pretty consistent. He describes a few fleeting glimpses, maybe a flash of a van by the burger chef, but not much else. Well, I know that he's uh, he's recanted that story, but it's it's too late. He's probably the only person, not probably, I know the case pretty well. He is the only person who ever came forward who said, I was there at the restaurant and I saw what happened when these kids left. This puts us almost back to where we were at the beginning, when Donovan Lindsay and Jim Kramer got the call about Alan Pruitt. Remember, police say an independent witness placed Pruitt and his friend at the Dunkin' Donuts that night. Did Pruitt make it all up? Pin the murders on a missing man and a local rowdy to get police off his back? Could he have seen something, only to have the memory fade with his hangover the next morning? What did his eyes take in as he staggered through the parking lot on that November night? Pruitt's lead could mean nothing. Or it could potentially be the key to solving the whole case. We are still trying to figure out which one it is. That I, you, you know, you think about it and look at it, in my point of view, it's looked like for how many years it, it just went around in a circle, giant circle. Yeah. No more evidence, no more nothing. It's just like a giant uh, hurricane. And it's just finally whizzled itself out, you know, over the years. Next week, the hurricane starts spinning again as we meet the convicted rapist who confessed to the Burgerschaft murders not once, but twice. And we talk with the man who put him in prison. Of course, there's a, what is the name of that serial killer that uh, they made a movie about? Ted Bundy. Bundy. Forcers like Bundy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching Murder Sheet. 
For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, please stick around to hear from our friend Nina from the Already Gone podcast, a great show you should definitely be checking out. I first learned about the Burger Chef murders from her 2016 episode on the case. Murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries. Already Gone explores lesser-known cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Join me for an in-depth look at stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and locking the doors at night. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.